Welcome to the Gospel Journey Podcast. The Gospel Journey exists to help our people get into discipling relationships that are centered on God's Word and led by His Spirit. Today we'll be in Ephesians 4 through 5.21. My name is Ben Robin. I'm here with Jamie Tressel and Damon Conley. One of the first things that I notice here in chapter 4 at the beginning, chapter 4 verse 1 in Ephesians, is pretty unique because it's the first command we get. So far, Paul's just been telling us about who we are in Christ and all these things that are true of us in the body of Christ. And then all of a sudden in chapter 4, he's telling us, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. There's our first command in the book. Yeah, and uh, maybe a good point here to to draw out uh, a general flow in Paul's letters uh, where the first half, he's really unpacking um, correct belief. And in the last half, and this is over, overly simplified, but in the last half, he's unpacking how those beliefs should actually change the way that we live. And so it's a microcosm of the Christian life that uh, knowing the truth about God should tangibly impact uh, lives that reflect and image God to the world. And that's the shift that he's making here. It, it doesn't do any good to learn all of this Bible and theology and it does not change the way that you live. And so Paul is going to help us start fleshing out practically what correct belief looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love the way he starts off after he talks about him being a prisoner and uh, this, you know, the walking in the manner of this, you know, this, this calling, which being calling, he gives us, you know, some of these, uh, which uh, a lot of people would see these as some of the fruits of the spirit, but he talks about, you know, humility and gentleness and patience, you know, bearing one another in love, which uh, are, you know, things that you must have in order to, to strive, walking these things out and not, you know, just being uh, head knowledge, as you just mentioned. So I think it's incredible how he starts this off. Yeah, and the idea, too, of walking, uh, you know, maybe good to point out that that's synonymous with a way of living. And so the, the expectation here is that, you're converted to Christ, the Spirit indwells you, and that that Spirit is producing in you a consistency of living that that Paul says is is a manner worthy of the calling which we've been called to. And we just saw in chapter 1, a weeks ago, that we've been called to be holy and blameless. Well, uh, uh, lifestyles worthy of that calling are pursuing the exact things you just mentioned, humility, gentleness, patience, etc. Yeah. And, you know, with that, you know, with the theme, I know, especially last week, uh, really all throughout this book of being, you know, this unity, uh, we have to be able to walk. Uh, the only way we can walk in, in, in this unity, um, as he's calling out these things, humility, gentleness, patience, is for us to, you know, as he said in verse three, to be eager to maintain the unity and the spirit and the bond of peace. So mm. all those are just very, very important as we are getting walking but for this unity that he's been, you know, uh, kind of threading throughout each chapter because of the blood of Christ, um, you have to have those in order to do that, make that possible. That was one of the things that I noticed this week as I was reading through um, Ephesians is that I think we often hear it talked about as a command, maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, which is great. And we should strive to maintain that unity. But it's actually even stronger than that. He says we should be eager to maintain. And so it's more of an attitude uh, that we have about the unity that we strive so that we are eager to strive to maintain it. Oh yeah, he he, you know, as as you read this, and you know, we don't have time to break down all the, 
the Greek. I know that's what Jamie, you know, he, he specializes in, spe- <laughs> in YouTube in. Uh, I speak this, English. You speak English? Yes. <laughs> so, but, you know, but but it's a sense of urgency. You know, like mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's some scholars would say that, you know, this is an imperative as they look at the, the way it is structured where he's like, no, we need to be eager. Like there is an urgency to having this unity and the bond of peace, uh, as, as you were saying. So I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. Yeah, and let me throw this out there. And honestly, I've done no pre-thinking on what I'm about to say. Um, I love it when you preface it with that. But would love your feedback on this. The because, Spirit of God is moving. Well, yeah, or the Spirit of me. Those usually aren't synonymous. Uh, but think through this with me uh, for a second. Uh, Paul's really speaking about true unity. We're talking about becoming a gospel people. You cannot do unless there's unity. Paul seems to be getting at the essence of unity, uh, and the essence of unity seems to begin internally with a individual believer eager to see the church unified, and the only way that's going to come to bear is if internally the Holy Spirit is bringing about this gentleness, patience, uh, self-control, all the fruits of the Spirit. You mentioned some of which Paul mentions here, but here's my thought on that is, uh, seemingly at times we almost reverse engineer unity. Okay. And so so uh, we start externally wanting to present ourselves as unified around external things. That's great, Jamie. Whereas the scripture here is bringing about a unity of the spirit who actually indwells us and, and uh, uh, almost operates us from the inside out. And so the more eager I am to be patient, gentle, and humble, genuinely eager... Uh, we're going to unify actually around those heart dispositions instead of uniting around external manifestations that these would probably bring about anyways. Yeah. Does that is does what I'm saying make sense at all? Yeah, yeah I think that's the the point I I want to be sure that we notice about verse one being the first command in the letter is that yes, it's an imperative. So uh, walking in a worthy uh, a manner worthy of the calling and maintaining that unity, being eager to maintain that unity, is a command. Yes, we should do it. We must do it as Christians. But before that is chapters 1 through 3. We must be Christians before we can live like Christians live. Mm-hmm. So just as you're saying, Jamie, we've got to have the Spirit take up residence inside us before we can have the Spirit produce fruit in us. So uh, theologians have called it the indicative and the imperative of Paul, and it's all over his letters. You have to have the indicative, what's true of you, what God has done in Christ to bring you to new life, before you can have the imperatives. If you switch the order, if you make it imperative, do all these things, and then you'll be united to Christ, then you just make it like every other religion, and nothing like Christianity. That is so rich, I think we should just stop the podcast right there. Um, (laughs) A lot of times, we kind of deal with the behavior modification portions of... yes. This, this walk of Christ and you know we can say okay well I was nice or I did this or I did that and as you said Jamie what's important is and what you just said in terms about this is true Christian living has the gospel really taken root into our hearts right you know, are we allowing the spirit of God to you know be what is empowering us to live and if so then yeah maintain the the unity uh, would be just just an outpouring yeah. Of what God has done inside of us. It's a natural uh, consequence. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's not a conversion's not about being nice. It's about being new. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, that's a great point. And just thinking through this context of the of the church or potential house churches in Ephesus that the letter may have circulated around to is if I try to take that and go from first century to step into twenty seventeen, uh 
to have genuine unity between Jew and Gentile. So I bring it in our Memphis situation, whether it be African American or white, black, however you want to talk about it. Uh, uh, Paul could have aimed at how to construct a worship service that culturally appeased to very different groups of people. And through that, that would manifest unity. He doesn't do that. He says, Jew or Gentile, uh, this must be true of your heart. And if this is true of your heart, the unity of the Spirit will manifest itself. And that's what I mean a little bit by uh, if we ever uh, invert that or reverse that, we can actually gather people and appease different cultural backgrounds and still not have unity. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Or a thin veneer of unity. Yes. Yeah, it yeah, looks yeah. like it, but it's not really right. got and any and depth I, to I, it. And I think in our culture, that's what, you know, it looks more like that. Yep. Unfortunately, it looks like, you know, let's just do this thing. Uh, and it's not, you know, as you're saying, we're, we're trying to appease different parties. Uh, and, and so, yeah, we were all off base as it relates to that. And I, I think that's incredible. You know. And our culture reinforces that because our culture says unity means an absence of conflict. Biblically considered, unity means a present presence of wholeness. And those are two different ideas of thinking through how to be unified. Right. Absolutely. I think the second thing, uh, second to what you're saying, and not second in importance, but second in what Paul talks about in order for us to have unity, is some some shared truth. And these aren't um, things that we would do to, to structure our um, worship service or, or something like that. It's instead um, the one body, the one spirit, the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism, the one God and Father, right? All of these one things that we're uh, that we're sharing in as people of Christ, as gospel people, that we can have unity around. The truths of the Christian faith unite us across lines that we usually divide, as we've talked about in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Ben, that was incredible. And, and now we want to, to shift uh, here. I'm going to get into a, a, a place and a verse and a passage that is controversial, starting at 8, you know, as it talks about you know Christ ascending to the lower regions of the earth and, and, and these things, which a lot of times people skip over. And, and we do think that it is important for us uh, as, as believers and as you're going through this journey to you know have some sense of, of knowledge in terms of what this is. And this is very controversial. Uh, a lot of people have different uh, ideals uh, about this. But just so you can know, uh, we, we see this as um, Christ's. Uh, his incarnational uh, descent into the lower regions, which would be him, you know, coming to earth to to um, you know fill the universe with uh, his personhood, his glory, uh, but also uh, the descent of the exalted Christ in the Spirit, as we see in Acts chapter one. He ascended, uh, leaving the Spirit here with us that will e- equip us and fill us with different gifts that uh, we will be talking about uh, as we look at the apostles and pastors and teachers as well as those gifts that we just mentioned, uh, speaking of the unity, those things that we needed for us to have unity in the bond of peace. And so um, I think that would be uh, imperative uh, for you to, to get that and have some type of language as you're walking uh, through that passage. Yeah, um, I, it does, though, actually lead into the next section that also can be confusing and is a little bit debated as far as, when Paul talks about, and he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, or you could probably read that, shepherd teachers, um, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, um, the only debated point in there really is, are he talk, is he talking about uh, there's an apostolic gift, a prophetic gift, an evangelistic gift, a teaching gift, or is he talking about these are offices of the church held by people gifted in these areas? 
And uh, I don't really know how to split that. I don't know, honestly, um, that it is as big of a deal to parse that as much as it is to know the purpose, regardless of how it plays out. Here's the purpose of the gifts to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, most of the scholars would indeed land on that. Uh, after you think through, are there prophets? Do they do they still exist and apostles and things of that nature? And a lot of people will get hung up on that, unfortunately, uh, in our day and time. As you said, the, the important piece is that Christ has supplied the church with gifted individuals that can equip the body to do the work of the ministry. And I think that's what we should, you know, as we look at this verse, spend our time and saying, look, God has gifted the church with these graces of, of teachers and shepherds uh, so that all of us can be equipped to use the gifts that he's given us uh, for the body. That's exactly right. It, like It is the call on church leadership, in my estimation, that that the, the goal and desire should be to equip the, the the church for the work of the ministry. Um, and, and it's interesting, as we've talked about, becoming a body of Christ, becoming a gospel people. If you go all the way through verse 12, uh, these verses weren't given to you for you. Mm. These verses were given to you for us, for all of us. And so unless you are a, a member of a local church, engaged in the life of a local church, it's really impossible to flesh out what Paul is calling us towards here uh, by yourself or just in your small group or just there. If you're disconnected from this thing, this mystery we talked about in chapter three, which is God building his church, shows the manifold wisdom of God. Uh, he's gifted you to be a part of that, to build up that entire body. So if you're not connected in, actually the entire church suffers because of your disobedience to not exercise your gift in the building up of a local body. Yep. You know, one of the misnomers is that these folks are, uh, that these gifts are only for the, the pastors and ministers, mm -hmm. but this is for all of us. All of us as believers are, you know, a call to be a part of the, you know, to be built up for the work of the ministry. And what I think as pastors, one of the responsibilities that we have and in, in this right here in this text, um, to build up the body of Christ, uh, implies a few things, uh, is that we are to teach the gospel well, so the body can be edified, but also to teach so that folks can avoid false teaching, uh, which uh, as a pastor and a shepherd is so important. It's not just preaching and giving people more head knowledge, but it's equipping them to be able to know what's true and what's false. Uh, and we have to, we, we cannot um, look over that as an important part of our job. Yeah. I, I mean, exactly what you just said. I, Paul uses the word mature, and I think you, what you're referencing is maturity. He talks about, uh, at verse 13, we attain the unity of faith, the knowledge of God, a son of God, to mature manhood. And we can make that gender inclusive here for all of us as Christ followers, um, you know, mature personhood in Christ. Uh, here's what's interesting about that, though. Uh, maturity in Christ is connected to the body of Christ. Yes. Not divorced from it. It's also the goal. It's not just the goal that Jesus save us, saves us in the past, that he justifies us. That's absolutely part of it. But it's that we would then be sanctified, that we would become more and more like Jesus, that we would grow up into maturity, into full personhood, as you said. That's the, the end we're all headed toward. And the way that that happens is through the work of the ministry. And so I'm, what I'm thinking about as I'm reading uh, 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12, is who does the work of the ministry? So I'll ask you guys that. 
Are you uh, asking me this in the Greek or <laughs> this is a trick? Can I phone a friend? <laughs> you don't need to. No, no. We all the church, uh, everyone who is part of the body yeah. are to do the work of the ministry. Uh, even the pastors, uh, ourselves, our role and responsibility is to equip, make sure that we use our teaching gifts uh, to equip the body. The but saints. The saints. All the work, saints. All the saints it. for the work of the yeah. ministry. But we have to remember uh, that we are part of the saints as yeah, well. Yeah, of course. We're not divorced from that. So if we've established that it's all the saints who do the work of the ministry, that means that none of us can sit on the sidelines. None of us can be consumers and can come on Sunday mornings, just grab our coffee and leave and not know anybody uh, or speak to anybody, right? We've, we've all got to be in the game uh, on this work of the ministry. But I think the next question is, what is the work of the ministry? That's a loaded question. Um, I think just to get right down to the nuts and bolts of it, the work of the ministry uh, is the, is this reality as saints. Our job is to proclaim the mystery of Christ, which is what Paul has been building up. Chapter one talks about it again in chapter three. This mystery is, is, is what we are to dispense to the world of, of Christ, what his blood has done for us, tearing down the walls of hostility. And all of us, pastors, uh, people who are members of a church, all of us, that that is our responsibility. Uh, It does not um, mean that we just come to church and, as you just said, drink our coffee, want to serve at the church, you know, kind of get plugged in in different places. Uh, Us proclaiming this is proclaiming Christ to to people who are lost. Um, We we have to make sure that we, we, we do this in a way that we are verbally making these proclamations of the gospel to people in our neighborhoods, people on our jobs, because they are lost. They are walking in darkness. Our role and responsibility, our cheap job. And I know we, we hate responsibility and words like that. You know, we would rather see it as an opportunity, but um, it is our responsibility to make sure that Christ is proclaimed to all nations, to all people. Uh, and that does not happen just by drinking coffee serving on a team at church, and we are grateful for, for those who serve, we have to get out of our comfort zones and go and open up our mouths and make a proclamation and tell people who Jesus is. That is such a good point. We, yeah, we could summarize that, that the ministry is us sharing the message of Christ to the people of Christ that we might all become more and more like Christ. Yes. And I think maybe just even real practically, we could define ministry as simply just sharing the Word of God and prayer with another person. That is ministry. If you're ministering the Word of God and prayer to somebody else, you're doing ministry. And mm-hmm. so we can we can share that with non-Christians in the hopes that they would become Christians, and we can share that with Christians in the hope that they would become more and more like Jesus. That's ministry. Yes. Yeah, with the goal being maturity or Christ-likeness, That's right. which you know, is the pursuit of discipleship that Christ calls us to obey everything that He's commanded. And that's why we're in these gospel journey groups, hopefully, because we're wanting to push each other towards maturity in Christ. And so it really does all come full circle from what, you know, Paul uh, wasn't there when Christ gave the Great Commission, but it's obvious that he knows Christ's words and takes it seriously. And he, he also doesn't see that only as an individual responsibility, but he's seeing this essential nature that the body of Christ becoming a gospel people plays in our growing into maturity and Christ likeness. I think what we're really talking about here, brothers, is speaking the truth in love, that that's what we want to as a body of Christ, as a gospel people. That's what we want to be doing 
uh, to each other. And that's what we want to have done to us is the truth to be spoken in love. I think a lot of times that verse um, can be taken out of context and, and, and shared as if to mean saying hard things in a nice way. And, and that's, that's good as far as it goes. But I think in context, it means sharing the gospel, the truth of the gospel with each other. That, again, we might grow up into maturity. I agree with that. I'll, I would expand upon it as well as a then a also sign of maturity is being able to say hard things in a loving way. It is continuing to season Christian conversation. There's a flavor of Christian conversation that should be there, and it should be seasoned with love. But I think the uh, way that people also misinterpret this, Ben, is that anytime you say something that hurts someone's feelings, you're just being mean, and Christians shouldn't be mean because Jesus isn't mean, um, which is a total, you know, 2000s, a weirdo, emotional-driven culture interpretation of the Bible. Uh, uh, you know, I was talking he to He sure did talk about hell a lot for somebody who's not a mean person. He did. <laughs> but, but, but why? Because out of love, he doesn't want you to go there. That's right. Um, that's good. And so you know, I was talking to my wife about this last night of even if, even if, if, uh, in the context of our marriage, we were to share something with one another that doesn't feel good. It doesn't, you know, you know, so, so when I recognize my shortcomings as a husband, I don't uh, shout for joy. It, it doesn't feel good, mm-hmm. but, uh, it's truth and, and, and love, uh, my wife doesn't want me and I don't want her to stay in any pattern of living that doesn't reflect Jesus. And so our responsibility as Christians is to have these conversations with one another, which demands relational courage. It also demands maturity. We're back to that word. And so, and so if you can't receive, you read through Proverbs, if you can't receive someone's honest, loving, uh, uh, revealing of your sin uh, and you won't receive it, so you're defensive, you push back against it, you want nothing to do with it. The Proverbs calls you a fool uh, as someone who won't take instruction. We cannot grow into maturity as a body of Christ unless there's relational courage and love that gives an environment to speak the truth about where we're not looking like Jesus and where we need to follow Jesus more closely. It's only the truth, and especially the truth of Christ, that is going to set us free and cause us to, as verse 15 says, grow up in every way into him. Yeah, but even but there's a way to do it, and that's yeah. what Paul's unpacking here. So, so just to come in and spout off, if I just come in and tell Damon everything that I don't like about him and everything... Please that, go for it. That, well, you don't have <laughs> enough time on the podcast, but... <laughs> You don't like because I don't have any hair. <laughs> if I were to come in and tell him everything that I thought he was doing that wasn't Christ-like, and I just left it there, that's actually not helpful. It, that That's harsh. That's right, because it would be hard for me to hear that. That's mm-hmm. exactly right. Yeah. But when that's done in a loving way, well, I mean, even think about Jesus before he dies, looks out over Jerusalem and weeps over the very people that are about to condemn him and lead to his crucifixion. How many times have I longed to just gather? I mean, you see the heart of God and the love, but he still spoke the truth. I mean, that was his motive in preaching the truth to them, even though the truth led to their condemnation. Yeah, I agree, and I really love Tim Keller, and uh, he has a great quote. He says, love without truth uh, is sentimentality. It supports and affirms, but keeps us in denial about our flaws, and, and I think that's 
where we have to have the maturity to be able to, to speak that truth. But he also says truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, uh, but in such a way we can't hear it. And so mm-hmm. I think, again, as a mature believer, we have to understand and figure out how to balance that because we have to speak truth, but it has to be done in a loving way. I have to speak the truth about who Jesus Christ is to people who are far, uh, people who are hostile towards the gospel, but I have to do it in a way where they would at least be willing to consider it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and if I just, you know, for a long period of time in our church history here in America, you know, that hell, fire and brimstone was like the, the popular message, you know, for evangelists to, to do. And it probably scared a lot of people, you know, make to make some type of profession. Uh, but that didn't stick. And in our culture today, that's not going to work because that's not loving. It's truth. If you're not going to receive Jesus, you would live apart from God for all of eternity. But how do we package that in, in a way that is loving where people will have more conversations and want to at least consider Christ? And I think that's what we have to do in terms of balancing truth and love. But it's so important to speak truth. But as a mature believer, also be able to do it in a loving way. Yeah, thanks, Damon. And then as we continue on that idea of maturity, we move into this next section that really goes all the way down through chapter 521 thematically of the idea of old man, new man, and and characteristics of living in those ways. And so if we just big picture, think of old man as pre-conversion and as new man as post-conversion, Paul is presenting these lines of living that coordinate with one of those two realities. And what he's, what he's exhorting us towards is, as new creations, live in such a way that reflects being a new creation, not trying to live as a new creation in ways that reflect the old person that we were. And so that's, the I think, the lines of thinking that Paul is going through here. And so we're going to get into several contrasting pairs of behavior, and really the list could be much longer. Paul picks these. But there is a way that is congruent with Christian living, and there's a way that a Christian becomes incongruent with, with a worthy manner of walking with Jesus. And so that's really what Paul starts unpacking for us uh, in the following verses down through chapter 521. Yeah, in, it's helpful for us to remember that, that the chapters and verse divisions are added after the fact in our English Bibles. Paul doesn't write uh, 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord. That's not what he's doing. He's not writing the verse numbers out. They're helpful for us as sort of addresses to know where to get to, uh, but they are added later for our our help. So when he's writing, he doesn't stop to start chapter 5. He just continues his thought straight into it. So you rightly pointed out that uh, chapter 4, verse 17, all the way to chapter 5, verse 21 is the same thought in in theme. Uh, It's also interesting that when he talks about this old self and new self, what happens in conversion, it's kind of like clothing. You take off one set of clothing and you put on a new set of clothing. Or like, uh, you guys know how I love sport. And uh, it's kind of like a jersey, right? You take off the jersey of the world and you put on the jersey of I, Jesus. I think the You're fact on that team you Jesus just now. said sport lets us know how much you don't yeah, yeah, actually that, that was my point. like sports. <laughs> that was exactly my point. Um, but But the point idea is the same. Jamie. You put on a new jersey. You put on Christ's jersey. You're you're with him now, and you're you're showing that to the world in the way that you live. And so starting in verse 25, like Jamie just said, we get these seven contrasting pairs of behavior, and it starts with putting away falsehood and speaking the truth. So there's the old self and the new self right there. Yeah, and there's a misconception, I think, too, that somehow once we come to Jesus, like all of that stuff disappears, uh, and it just doesn't. Like there, now, there's some radically new things about us as it relates to our sin, but our sin's still there. 
And so while I'm free from the penalty of sin, I'm free from the power of sin in the sense that it doesn't have to be a master of me. Uh, I'm not free from its presence. And so this is an ongoing battle for the believer to walk in the reality of Christ's righteousness, knowing that our sin is still right there and I will fall into it. And I will look like the old creation at times that should not characterize Mm. my life. Yeah. And Paul's answer isn't look now you're perfect. That's right. But it is indicative imperative. Again, you have put off the old man and put on Christ live according to that. Amen. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm looking at this next one. I guess Jamie uh, left me be angry and do not sin. And if I can be honest, you know, uh, you know, anger is something that, you know, keeps, rearing his head, you know, in my life, you know, there was a point pre-Christ where, you know, I was so angry, a lot of things happening in life, but just could easily just be, be ready to become defensive and, you know, ready to attack. Um, and, but Paul was saying, Hey, not, don't be angry. He said, be angry. We don't sin. And so I think, uh, as Jamie and you all just alluded to just, um, you know, we're still, we're on a new team. We have on a new Jersey, a lot of those elements are still there, but we have to, you know, figure out how to fashion it in a way that will model Christ likeness. And we can walk through all these pairs. Um, could, you know, ashamedly uh, show you ways, except maybe stealing that doesn't rear its head um, in my life. And and uh, but but look, the reality is, even as I walk with Jesus, my sin is right there. It's ever before me. Uh, it post conversion. You know, I had an interesting thing happen one time. When I was pastoring in Austin. Uh, I was having lunch with a church member. Prayed for the food, and he asked me a question that I'd never been asked before. And he said, "Why do you ask God to forgive us for our sins every time I hear you pray? That's already been done in Jesus." And while I took his point as a positional truth, it struck me as very odd because yes, Christ has forgiven me. But in no way should I ever stop repenting. And there was almost this line of thinking that, well, that's been taken care of. We don't need to repent anymore because we repented once. But uh, that's not Christian living. Christian living is an ongoing reality. I still sin. I, and that's what Paul means. That we grieve the Holy Spirit when we live like the old creation, even though he's made us new. And if I don't repent, I'm not recognizing that in real time. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, look, yes, if you have called upon the name of the Lord and trusted Christ in faith, you are forgiven. We don't stop repenting because we don't stop sinning. It doesn't mean that I'm saved all again, but it does mean I am acknowledging to God who I want to have intimacy with that I still grieve him, and that grieves me. It seems like passages in Scripture like this tend to make us or some of us really nervous because we do still have sin in our lives. We're, we're not perfect. We don't look just like Jesus uh, yet. And one day we will in glory, but it's not going to be on this earth. Uh, not here. And I think one sort of maybe solution, if that's the right word, to that problem is for us to talk about, well, no, we do still have sin in our lives. And I think if we talk about that wrongly, it starts to sound like, well, there's no difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. And in the sense of still being sinful, of course there's, there's no difference there. We still have sin in our lives. And yet, the biggest difference is exactly what you're talking about, Jamie. It's our attitude towards that sin in our lives. Do we ignore it? Do we sweep it under the rug? Do we make light of it? Do we think it's not a big deal? Or, as Christians, do we repent of it? When Jesus Christ says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, does he intend for it to be a one-time past action? Or, what I think, 
does he intend for it to be a present, continuous, into the future, forever action? That our entire lifestyle is one of repentance. Yeah, I think our lifestyle has to uh, model what you just said. Just constantly I've been in, in a position of repentance. And I think uh, this is, and I, I do this plug for doing life with people here. That's why it's so important for us not to try to, you know, even though we have to work out our own salvation uh, uh, in terms of the way uh, the, the fruit is to be, uh, to come about. We have to do life in community with people so that we can't lie about our sin to ourselves, that we can't, you know, uh, look in the mirror and see the the person that we want to be and not the person we actually are. And so that's why we, you know, at least here at our church, we, we are constantly trying to get people to do life with folks, not simply just to connect with people. Yeah, that's a good But point. to get together, to, to fellowship, to be on the word, to be missional, uh, to care for each other. But it's also for for me to have people I can share. This is what I'm struggling with. I've tried, you know, options one through five. I don't have help. I need you guys to pray. I need you all to, to be in this with me. Uh, that's why we can't do it alone. It's not good to do it alone because if you're isolated, that sin that you are struggling with will continue to, mm. you know, to, to rule you, even though uh, Christ has defeated sin. Uh, but we need people to speak into those things so that we can, you know, try to live and walk in a manner that would be worthy of this calling. And not only would you maybe be tempted to walk in the darkness rather than the light, I also have blind spots. And so I need the body of Christ. I need you, Damon, to tell me what my blind spots are so I can repent of those. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I tell you, that the best thing that happened about nine or ten years ago when we first kind of got into this concept of doing groups and doing life with people one, it was it was it was like hard. I, I don't want to share what I'm struggling with <laughs> yeah. with this person. I don't really know him yet. But over time, it became I want to live. I really truly want to fight my sin in such a way because I don't want to have to come and say, "Hey, this is what mm-hmm. what I've done." Not because I'm embarrassed, it's because of my love for Christ. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't want to do anything that's going to defile His name or bring shame hey. uh, to His name as as a, a follower of Christ. That's it. So um, let me wind us down with with. Maybe a final thought on this section. Uh, Just a step back and keep big picture in mind. Paul is saying, walk a certain way, which is synonymous with living. It is lifestyle, what is normally true of us. And in this final section, he's saying, look, walk as a new creation, not as an old creation. And I think we need to mention what he says in chapter 5, where he says in verse 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, covetousness, or idolatry has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. That's a scary verse because even as Christians, uh, or me as, a, as, as, as someone who's been redeemed by Christ, by his grace, uh, that stuff can still be true of me. So does that mean I have no inheritance in the kingdom of God? And that's where we got to keep in perspective. Paul is saying you can't walk like that. If those things define your life, then Yes, step back and examine and say, maybe I don't know the Lord. I don't, I'm not grieved over it. It defines me. But look, if you're doing it and it grieves you and you're repenting and turning from it, then Paul would say, look, that is you living out your new creation reality in a fallen world where the old self still rears its head. And so uh, uh, we want to make sure as Christians, our lives aren't defined by sin and that we're, we don't live life where we're not grieved by our sin. Those are the big warning signs. Yeah, you cannot live like a new creation unless you are one. You must be a new creation before you can live like a new creation. And so somebody who's hearing this might be thinking, well, my life is defined by those things. And to that person, we would say, you must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. Yep. 
But to another person who's listening to this, their life's not defined by it, and yet the old man, as you said, rears his ugly head. And to that person we say, well, look, yes, of course the old self remains, but he does not reign. Mm. Christ does. That's good. That's good. Amen, brother. All right, so as we move forward uh, in God's kindness and grace towards us, that we'll be begging the Holy Spirit to convict us of where we are living as the old person, though we are new, or that the Holy Spirit will convict us that we really are the old person need to be made new, and that moving forward that we would, as a gospel people, speak the truth in love so that all of us are moving in maturity and our walks in life would look more and more like Jesus. 